We'll be in the Romans text this morning, Romans chapter 15. We'll make it all the way to verse 7. We won't get to the whole, whole text, but I'll allude to it. We'll only get to verse 7. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll start. Thank you, Lord, for this day, for uh, this, this church. We ask you to help us this morning as we uh, again sit to hear your word. Ask, we ask that you uh, use it to give us encouragement and hope. Um, I pray that you'll help me as I preach so that what I say will be in keeping with your, uh, your revelation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul hasn't ever, ever been to Rome when he writes this letter. He hasn't been there yet. He's going to get there eventually, but he'll be under arrest. Uh, this is before that happens. Um, he doesn't write this letter to the citizens of Rome. When you read the letter to the Romans, he doesn't mean all the people who live in Rome. He's writing it to the church in Rome. I should probably say the church is in Rome, because in the very next chapter, in chapter 16, Paul greets several congregations meeting in different homes sprinkled uh, through the city or around the city. Uh, the first congregation would probably get this, this letter that Paul writes, and they would read it and, and copy it and then pass it on to the next, next congregation. That's incidentally why we have so much so many New Testament manuscripts and fragments and evidence because most churches would copy these letters before, before passing them on. Now, uh, we call a Romans a letter, but it wouldn't be this kind of thing that they'd receive and kind of tack up in the ancient bulletin board down in the parish hall so people could read it during coffee hour. It wasn't that kind of, kind of letter. It would be read out during worship. Uh, people hearing... Uh, this letter to the Romans for the first time would hear it like you're hearing, hearing this sermon. It was kind of like a sermon. It would have been maybe in the place of, of the sermon. They would hear this letter read out. Now, I just said uh, that Paul had never been to Rome when he wrote this, so you might wonder how he knows enough uh, to sermonize at them. How does he know enough to tell them uh, about things? Well, Paul hasn't been there yet, but his close friends, Priscilla and Aquila, have. In fact, Paul greets them in the next chapter, in chapter 16. They're living there in Rome. He met them for the first time in Corinth. Before that, they lived in Rome, and now they're back living in Rome again. They didn't leave Rome and go to Corinth voluntarily. Uh, the emperor Claudius banished all Jews from the city in somewhere around 40-something AD. And we're told why by the Roman historian Suetonius, he says that there were riots among the Jews in Rome over a man called Crestus. More than likely, that's just his understanding of the word Christ. There was riots over the name, the word, the person Christ in the Jewish quarter. And we can imagine what happened. As news about Jesus circulated through the synagogues in Rome, well, the gospel did what the gospel always do, always does. Some would hear and recognize, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus to, to save me, and they would submit to, to Jesus as their God and their king, and others wouldn't do that at all. But if you play that out in, a, in the setting of a synagogue, there's going to be some hostility. If I'm, if I'm a Jew and I'm openly worshiping this Jesus as not just my Messiah, but as my, as my God, that doesn't go over well with, with Jews who don't believe he's any of those things. 
who believe he's a crucified blasphemer. So that's why there would be the riots. So the, the very first Christians in, in Rome were Jews who split off from the Roman synagogues to form these churches. Now, Good Shepherd, some of us anyway, not all of us here, but some of us here know what it's like to split off from a place and a people because of Jesus. And at the very first, it was back in 2009, at the very first, there was a lot of relief and joy and peace because the struggle that we've been struggling with is over and there was a kind of a period of rest. But then, well, because Jesus is Jesus, that, that didn't last long. It doesn't last long. It tends not to last long. Jesus is, is the prince of peace and all that, but he has this thing that he likes to do that congregations sometimes find disturbing. He goes out and he finds people who don't believe in him, and then he turns their hearts and he makes them his own. Now, that's not the disturbing part. That's kind of the good part. Hopefully, if you're a Christian, you think that's a good thing, that Jesus goes out, goes out and, and does that. It's the next part that's the, the troubling part. Because then he insists that these people go to church. He, he puts them in churches. And it would be one thing if, if Jesus were more discerning about where he put people. I mean, if he, if he, if he said, no, let's see, I've just, I've just given Bob here new birth. Not, not Bob calls me, just a, a, a random Bob. I've just given Bob here new birth. I've just made him a, made him a Christian. Uh, he's Irish. He's got Irish customs. He's got Irish manners. He's got Irish habits and tastes. And you know what? Bob has issues with those Italians. He doesn't like the Italians at all. So uh, he doesn't like the Italian food. He doesn't like Italian music. He doesn't like Italian manners. He doesn't like Italian anything. He doesn't like Italians at all. So I better not, as Jesus, stick Bob the Irishman with all those, with all those Italians. Because if I did that, there'd be a lot of turmoil, and, and Bob won't be able to flourish around people that he doesn't like. So when I save an Irish person, I'll put the person with an Irish church, and when I find an Italian person and save an Italian person, I'll put an Italian person in an Italian church, and Nigerians to Nigerian churches, and Brazilians to Brazilian churches, and everyone will be happy. See, Jesus doesn't care about any of that stuff. He routinely, he regularly, he consistently sticks people together in churches who don't want to be together for whatever reason, ethnicity or whatever. And then he says things like, don't neglect the gathering of the saints. So you have to go and show up. There's no way out. Now, of course, people are always trying to circumvent Jesus by finding congregations where the people who annoy them and they don't like aren't going. So they'll leave one congregation for another to get away from those people. But what Jesus did in the first century made that circumventing nearly impossible, even in a city like Rome, where there were several churches to choose from. He brought in the Gentiles, non-Jews. The Jewish congregations in Rome are surrounded by Gentiles. It's, it's Rome. They're surrounded by, by Romans. You couldn't get away from them if you were a Jew. They were everywhere. Um, and so soon, every congregation, every Jewish congregation had a Gentile problem. <laughs> well, 
the Romans, the Gentiles were raised eating, drinking, thinking, and living in ways utterly unlike Jews, worshiping pagan gods. They don't worship those anymore when they come to the church, but they had been worshiping pagan gods who the Jews considered, and they were right, demons, and doing horrible things connected uh, with that worship. So Jesus converts Gentiles, and he brings them to the Jewish churches. And it caused all kinds of problems, as you can imagine. Jews, the Jews at the time, and maybe still now in Orthodox circles, are raised to consider, or were raised to consider Gentiles not just evil, although they, they thought that, uh, and not just morally corrupt, they, they thought that, but, but they were raised to kind of feel a sense of revulsion and disgust about uh, the Gentiles, especially regarding the things they ate. I watched a travel show, uh, so I can't remember when, but the other day, I watched a traffic show, or traffic, travel show. What a, it's from my mouth today, travel show, the other day, about exotic delicacies that people eat in different parts of the world. And there's, uh, maybe you've seen this particular one, but there's this cheese that has worms, like living worms burrowing into the cheese. And, and I was watching, I forgot where in the world this was, but the people were just eating it up like it was the best thing in the world. It was this delicacy. My stomach was, was turning watching the thing. It, it, was, it was terrible. Imagine, imagine if one of those people from wherever that place was came to this church and, they, and, they, and we have a potluck one Sunday and you go down and you put your nice tasty meatballs down on the table and there's the worm cheese right there um, from this person. It would be kind of disgusting. Well, that's how Jews felt about things like pork or crab or shrimp things that the Gentiles would normally eat. Not only because of custom, it wasn't just a customary dislike they had, it was also because God, under the old covenant, declared those things unclean. Jews didn't make that up, that's what God said. But now, suddenly, if you're a Jew, God brings in the new covenant, he, Jesus' blood makes all things clean, and you're supposed to turn on a dime like that and welcome in the Gentiles and not be offended by the pig meat they bring to the potluck. You can't even make them get circumcised anymore. Now, Paul, Paul knows about this problem. He's, he's, Jesus called Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and, and he's been telling the Gentiles, there's only one thing you need to do. You must, to be acceptable before God, you must trust in his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. No, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep kosher laws like, uh, like the, the Jews do. You don't have to have any of the ceremonial laws applying to you. You just trust in Jesus Christ. Those laws that you don't have to follow anymore were all bound up with the old covenant which Jesus has fulfilled. And as, and as long as you're not a glutton and a drunkard, you're free to eat what you want to eat and drink what you want to drink. And the Jews are free too, so Paul would tell them. Now here's a question though. Here's the question, I think, for the Gentiles coming into the Jewish church. And it's a question I think you and I should also ponder. If you're free to do something, if it's not a sin to do something, what then determines whether or not you do that thing? Is it, is it desire? I, I want to do it. I'll do it. And if I don't want to do it, I won't do it. After all, that's what freedom is, at least that we perceive of it. Well, that, that's the question 
Paul addresses all through chapter 14, which leads up to chapter 15, naturally. And then it's, it's a, it, he, he sums up the principle there in verse 1 of chapter 15. We who are strong, he says, have an, an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now notice there are two groups there. There's the strong and the weak. And that could be translated the able and the unable. Paul categorizes himself, you'll notice, among the strong. Paul is a Jew. He's a former Pharisee even. But he is a Jew who eats whatever's set in front of him. If he's visiting a Jewish family, he eats like the Jewish family eats. When he visits a Gentile home and they set the bacon down next to the scrambled eggs, he eats the bacon too. He's able to do that. He's strong. And he's considered strong, or he uses the category strong to describe himself because he fully embraced, he has fully embraced the new covenant and all of its implications, all, all that it entails. Those dietary laws had their purpose. They did. Uh, the unclean foods were largely associated with death, decay, sickness, and things that slither around and wallow in the muck, like a serpent. So animals that kill other animals and eat them, unclean. Vultures, hyenas, roadkill, unclean. Pigs mucking around in the muck, unclean. Those dietary laws reminded the Jews that sin brought about death, decay, sickness, and corruption into the world. But Jesus took Adam's sin and he took your sin, he took my sin uh, to himself and he bore the penalty for it and he blots out your sins when you, when you come to him. And then he rose again undoing the power of death. And when he comes again, he will scour away every last vestige of sin's ruin. The curse has been already broken by his work. The sacrifice has been made. The creation itself, therefore, will necessarily one day be set free from decay and death and corruption and all of that. And so because that's true, because Jesus has done that, the dietary laws are fulfilled and obsolete. You can read about that in Acts chapter 10 or the book of Hebrews or Mark chapter 7. And so Paul eats his bacon. Thanks be to God. That's a good thing. The Jews, likewise, who follow his example and eat the non-kosher foods are also considered strong. The Gentiles, also considered strong. But here we have to ask, what about the weak? What about the weak ones? The, the, Jewish, Christ, the Jewish, Jewish Christian woman, for example, who knows intellectually, yes, it's fine for that Roman Julia to bring her pork roast at, to the agape meal. She's free to do that. But, but the Jewish woman's heart, her conscience just hasn't caught up with her mind. What about her? The roast pig, as good as I might find it, would physically nauseate her and send her into a moral quagmire of sorts. So what if the Jewish woman goes up to Julia, I'm just using that name because it was a Roman female name, and says, I don't know what to do. 
I know, I know, and I respect that you are free to bring your roast, and I really want to be okay with that, and I want to get to know you, but I'm struggling with it, and I'm failing. I have to go, you know, I can't be around it without getting sick. So what should the strong person say in response? Now, in our day, the strong person might say something like, that sounds like a you problem. (laughs) My kids say that all the time. That sounds like a you problem. But see, now Paul would say, no, that's a me problem. In fact, I have an obligation. It's my duty. It's my responsibility, he says, to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, that word, uh, it's one word, bearing with, it's one word in Greek, isn't just tolerating, isn't just, okay, we'll put up with these people. It's, it's more than that. When you see someone maybe struggling to lift up a heavy piece of furniture and failing and dropping it, and then you, and, and then you go and you help them, you, you get under the weight yourself and you help carry it around, that's what this word, you use, you use this word to describe that. It's, it's, you, you bear, Paul's saying, you bear the weak piece of person's burden as if it were your burden. You get under the weight of it. You have an obligation, Paul says, to do that. Now, there is a caveat, and we should be aware of it. Um, if the weak person, who's having trouble with the pork or whatever, tries to make a law out of his or her weakness, if that person says something like, well, you're disobeying God if you eat pork because it makes me feel uncomfortable. That's called the tyranny of the weaker brother. And Paul would say, now that is a you problem. That's not a me problem. You're trying to bind people. Jesus is set free. The instruction here, and I want you to notice it's kind of interesting. The instruction here is not to the weak person. It doesn't say, hey, you weak people who aren't willing to eat all this stuff, make sure those strong people conform to your preferences. He's not commanding them to do anything at all. The instruction is to the strong. You, you strong people, you willingly, you volitionally help bear uh, the, the burdens that the weak are feeling. And that means not pleasing yourself. Boy, is that a, that's a countercultural thing right there. That not pleasing ourselves, he says. That's in violent conflict with the present day thinking. Self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction, expressing yourself. These are all considered requisite components of human flourishing today. If you're not, if you're not doing those things, you're not healthy. Not pleasing yourself, not exp- expressing yourself, that's, that's harmful actually to your psyche. That's how people think today. I've got to be me. I'm not going to let, and maybe you've said something like this or heard something like this, I'm not going to let your issues, your weakness, limit my choices. That would not be healthy for me. That's, that's a very 21st century thing to say. Now in church, we're even more sophisticated because we've, some, we've developed some language for this kind of thing. So uh, say some people um, need help with something and you don't want to help. Don't, don't say, I'll just give you a hint, if you're new to a church, don't say, I don't want to help you because they'll think really bad things about you. Don't say, I don't want to help you. Say, I don't feel led to help you right now. I, I just don't feel, uh, or, or I don't feel that's my gifting. Uh, that's, not, that's not my gifting area, so I, I really can't help you. God, the Lord hasn't given me those gifts 
to do this thing. Or let's say the people who need you to help them or want you to help them make you feel uncomfortable for some way. You just say, you don't say, don't say, I just don't want to be around you. They think badly of you. But if you say something like, I just don't have peace about that, then you're, then you're spiritual, right? So we have, we have wonderful, sophisticated ways to get around uh, things that we don't want to do. But Paul would say that if you see someone struggling under a burden and you're strong enough to help, you have an obligation to help them even if you don't want to, even if it makes your life more difficult doing it. And in fact, that's what the Spirit is leading you to do. Now, uh, Paul's been talking about the strong, pleasing, and bearing with the weak, uh, and not pleasing themselves. But notice in verse 2, it goes both ways. Let, us each, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Each of us, meaning both strong and weak, we all individually, please our neighbors. So I should think to myself every morning I wake up, how can I please Anne today? Or how can I please please the kids today. And when I come to, to, to church, to work, I can say, how can I please John or Micah and Stephanie and Michael and all the, all the rest? And when I'm getting ready for Sunday morning, I should think, how can I please the people who are going to be here uh, listening to me preach? Uh, now, just think about what's necessary, what would be necessary for you to obey this command to please your neighbor for his good. And the setting here is a local church. What would be necessary for you to do that? Well, for me, I've got to know you well enough to know what will please you and what will displease you, and vice versa. You need to know me well enough, and you need to know your spouse well enough, and your friends well enough, and the people sitting around you well enough to know what would please them and what wouldn't. So keeping Paul's instruction here requires that the church not be a place where you just kind of pop in uh, for Sunday services and pop out before anyone can shake your hand or say hello? The implication is, is that this is your people. This is your kin. This is your, this is your nation. This is your family. The implication is, is that your, your life is interwoven uh, with the congregation. Now, uh, when, I, when I said, I don't think anyone else here, I don't think anyone here would think this, but uh, when I said a minute ago um, that I should consider what will the people listening to me, or I should consider what would please the people listening to me, some theoretical person might have said, well, how about cutting your sermon in half? That would please me. But see, if, if Paul stopped with let each of us please his neighbor, full stop, then you might have a point. But he doesn't stop there. Imagine for just a minute if he had stopped there. I've read this to you before. It's from a popular... Uh, a person who claims to be a Christian, a popular author who claims to be a Christian. Her name is Glennon Doyle, and she came out as a lesbian, and she divorced her husband and left him and moved in with her, her person. Um, and a Christian woman who had been reading her books before this uh, wrote to her and said, I, I really love you, and I loved, I loved your writings before, and I pray, I pray that you're, you'll repent and come back to Jesus. And Glennon Doyle wrote back to her, and this is what she said, if you want to change me, you don't love me. You have a choice to make. You have to choose between loving me and keeping your beliefs. 
What, what, would, what would please Glennon Doyle? What would please Glennon Doyle if, if the woman had written to her instead, I'm overjoyed by your decision. Uh, I'm so happy that you are being true to yourself. In fact, your relationship with this other woman makes me question my faith and want to change my mind about things. That would have pleased Glennon Doyle. But it would not have pleased Glennon Doyle for her good. That would not have built her up. That kind of pleasing, and we, we sometimes mistakenly call that love, and it's not, that kind of pleasing would lead to her ruin. That kind of love is not love. No, uh, pleasing doesn't mean giving a person whatever he or she wants. If I'm doing something that's hurting me, and I'm really pleased by it, don't come alongside me and help me be pleased in that thing. You'll just be hurting me. Don't help me. To please someone for a person's good is to, is to act in a way in keeping with what God has revealed to be good. That's, what you, that's the good that you want for that person. And so that means sometimes pleasing your neighbor in this way for his good or her good feels displeasing to both of you. It's not comfortable sometimes. In fact, all of the things I've been describing here, it's a kind of hard work denying yourself uh, helping, getting under other people's burdens is a lot of work. So why do it? And Paul has a good answer for you there in verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's a quote. You see the quotation marks. That's from Psalm 69. Uh, David, King David, wrote Psalm 69 in a period of weakness and, and sorrow and, and despair. He was surrounded by enemies who were also hostile toward Yahweh. And the, the people who reviled David at his, at his lowest point also attributed David's weakness at that point to Yahweh's powerlessness to help. Some help your God is. They kind of, they kind of mocked him for the position that he was in that God wasn't helping him out. And for that reason, David writes, the reproaches of those who reproach you, Lord, fell on me, David. David's psalm, and Paul tells us this in this text, David, uh, David's psalm is ultimately about, about Jesus. The eternal word breathed out the words that David, David wrote, and they're ultimately fulfilled in, in Jesus' own suffering. So, so, so Paul puts these words in Jesus' lips. Now, if you didn't know Psalm 69, you might think that Paul's saying, Jesus bore what you ought to have borne, and so you go and do likewise for, for your neighbor. And that's a true principle, and he does say that elsewhere, but that's not what he's saying here. Here, the you is, is God, it's the Father. And, 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 and through, from Jesus' lips, it's something like this, the reproaches of those who reproach you, Father, fell on me, Jesus. So, Paul's point is this, Jesus so sought to please his father and so reflected his father's character into the world that all of the hostility the fallen world bears toward God fell on Jesus on, on the cross. Remember, you might remember this, it wasn't something he wanted to do necessarily. He prayed the night before, Father, if this path, 
If this cup can pass for me, please let it pass for me. But your will be done, not my will. And when it became clear that the Father's will was that he, that he die, Jesus didn't please himself, but he bore his Father's reproach. So what's the point? What's, what's Paul trying to say here? Well, just imagine for a second that, going back to the church in Rome, imagine being a Jewish Christian raised in a Jewish home. You've got a Jewish mom, you've got a Jewish dad, you've got a Jewish brother and sister, Jewish family members, and, and here you are, you've left the synagogue, and you're meeting in this church, and that's bad enough. But then along come the Gentiles, and you're eating with them, and you're drinking with them, and you're meeting with them. What would your Jewish mama say? Or your dad? And what about the Roman? Roman person no, no longer attending the feasts and the festivals with his family or her family that would be regular part of the life of, the, of a, fam, a Roman family. And, and instead of that, hanging out with Jews, worshiping the Jewish God and eating like the Jews eat so as not to offend Jews. Why do you care so much about those Jews? So what Paul's saying here is, please one another. Jews, you, you draw so close to the Gentiles that the reproach that your Jewish family harbors toward your Gentile brothers and sisters also falls on you, and vice versa. So let me just ask you, what, what, what do people today think about you know, Christian sexual ethics. What do people think today about our claim that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and there's no way to the Father apart from him? What do you think would happen today if you just took the Bible, opened it to, you know, Ephesians 5, just to say that, and just read the words, you know, wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives like Jesus loves the church. What do you think would happen? How, how, do, how do people hear those words in our culture? Those words, the things we believe, Bring about reproach. Now, sometimes Christians think there's something wrong when that happens, that if we were just more Christ-like, there would be no reproach. But I hasten to remind you that, that Jesus was pretty Christ-like, wasn't he? he was, in fact, I would say that Jesus it was, the, it was the, the, the platonic ideal of Christ-likeness, and he still, they crucified him. Sometimes Christians are so afraid of being associated with beliefs that our world abominates that we're embarrassed. Tempted even to please the world by distancing ourselves from brothers and sisters. We say things like, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm just not that kind of Christian. Not, not, not that sort of Christian. And sure, I, yeah, I'll be the first to admit, uh, there are Christians who do embarrassing and obnoxious things. We can see that all the time. I mean, maybe, um, maybe the guy with the loudspeaker on the corner telling people to repent because the end is coming, maybe that guy makes you cringe, does he? And, and we can debate his methods, whether they're good or bad. I don't I mean, we can debate the, the methods. But he's your brother. If it's a she, she's your brother. And I think Paul would say, never join the world in its reproach toward your brother or your sister. You can argue with your brother and sister, but don't join the world 
in their approach. Don't lend your voice to the world's sneer at the bride of Christ. Don't distance yourself. Bear the reproach with your brother and your sister. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Paul is now explaining why he quoted Psalm 60, uh, 69, I think, uh, or 63, whatever Psalm it was. Uh, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Solomon, Isaiah, and all the rest of the writers of the Old Testament, they may not have understood fully what they were doing, but whatever they wrote, that's what Paul is saying, whatever they wrote in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament was written for us. God breathed it out ultimately for the new covenant church so that through endurance, that's the, the bearing up under pressure, under suffering and turmoil and anxiety and all that kind of thing. But continuing in the scriptures, reading them, studying them, inwardly digesting them, hearing them preached, through the encouragement the scriptures provide, and here I remind you again, reading the Bible isn't like reading other books. Other books have the have the power, I guess, to move you depending on your mood and your state of mind at the time. God's word doesn't depend on your mood or state of mind at the time. Scripture is one of the great instruments through which God imparts to you his help and his strength. Whether you're looking for it or ready for it or think you're getting it or not, he does that. So read them. That you might have hope. And New Testament hope is never a chance thing. I, I continually hope the Cowboys will do okay in every year, and it never quite happens. So, but New Testament hope is not like that. It's, it's, it's more like hoping you know, for Christmas when you're a kid. When, when it comes about you know, three or four weeks until Christmas, you know that day is coming. It's going to be here. And so the, the thought of it in the future brings joy to the days of anticipation leading up to it. In this case, the Gentiles and the Jews can read the Old Testament scriptures and find that what the prophets foretold would happen when the Christ comes. They can look around and see, that's happening. Uh, uh, Paul, he quotes four Old Testament texts in verses 8 through 12, and we won't get to them at all, but I, I was pointing them to you. But they, they, in some, they say, when Messiah comes, Gentiles will praise Yahweh along with, together with Jews. Uh, the last of the quotations, the root of Jesse, that's the Messiah, the root of Jesse will come, Isaiah says, even he who, arise, who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So if a Roman Christian wonders, uh, is, is, is Jesus really the Son of God? Has he really died for me and forgiven my sins? All the Jewish Christian in Rome has to do is go down into the parish hall and smell the bacon that Julia brought. And, 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 and the Roman can just look around and see that she is worshiping the God of Israel with a bunch of Jews. And both can know by, on the basis of that it's all true. All that the scriptures foretold has come to pass. The Christ, Jesus, has come to save sinners and he's coming back. I can live now in anticipation of that sure event of his second coming. And you too, us right here, now. 
Most of us are Gentiles. I think some of us have some Jewish blood, but I'm Irish and Norwegian. I should be, like, if things were all normal and Jesus hadn't come, maybe I'd be worshiping Odin or something or hanging out with Druids in some forest clearing or something. I don't know. But here I am, worshiping the God of Abraham. Just as the scriptures foretold. And so you can set your hope on Jesus who brought that to pass. You can set your hope on his coming again and bringing everything, making everything, everything new. In fact, hoping in Jesus is how you can bear denying yourself and pleasing your neighbor. Because with Jesus, you don't need your neighbor to please you. Jesus becomes your bread, he becomes your life, he becomes your light and your satisfaction. And that's why Paul writes in verses 5 and 6, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The whole thing, the whole thing crashes to the ground without this, without God. There's no endurance, there's no encouragement, there's no harmony. Just, just think, to make this really relevant maybe, uh, think of the person who has hurt you most in this congregation. Maybe you're sitting beside him or her right now, I don't know. Think of the person who irritates you the most, who offends you the most, who maybe repels you the most. Just you, you're uncomfortable being around that person. How, how do you, okay, you're commanded to get over that in some way. How do you get over that? Is it, is it willpower? I just exert my will? Where do you get the will to get over that? It only comes from God. It comes through Jesus who lives in you. You need him to give you the will to do this and the compassion to bear that burden and the love to bear the reproach of the world together with your brothers and sisters. That's the only way. He's the only way. So you go to him and, and you ask for his help. And he'll give it to you. And the consequence, the result will be that together with one voice, we glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, there's, there's the harmony. There's harmony between Jews and, and, and Gentiles, between Irish people and Italian people and African people and European people. Uh, there's, con there's harmony here between us as contrary as we are in some ways to each other. And, and that harmony that we have when we raise our voices to worship together, that harmony we have makes the power of Jesus Christ manifest. It brings glory to him and to his Father. The union of the church, and I'm not just talking of the spiritual union. No one sees the spiritual union. I'm talking about the day-by-day, the, the day, gritty union, the kind of thing you see when two people decide to forgive each other. When someone decides to give up what pleases her to please someone else. Those sometimes very small, but other times incredibly painful acts of sacrifice. That's the harmony that makes Jesus' presence and power manifest. It glorifies him. Because without him, none of that happens. Divorce, division, feuds, 
strife, unforgiveness, war, even sins, selfish cacophony only gets worse without Jesus. But in Jesus, he alone brings harmony. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Jesus, to whom you and I have only given grief, to whom you and I could give nothing but offense. He didn't just say reluctantly, oh, I guess you can come. Yeah, all right, I'll bring, I'll bring you along if you have to come. You have. He threw open the gates for you. He threw you over his shoulders and carried you back to his flock. And it cost him everything to do it. And he paid it gladly. So now, since that's true, and since that's irrevocable, go and do likewise. Bear with the weakness, and the sin, and the inability of the people around you. Because Jesus has borne with you and bears you all the way to the end. We'll stop here and pray. Lord, thank you for the scriptures which do encourage us. Not only do they give us instruction, Lord, but you use your word to give us strength to, to keep the law that you give to us. You give us news of Jesus who died to save us from the curse of the law when we fail, which we do. Uh, we thank you for the revelation of the gospel and the co second coming of Jesus, which we await in anticipation. Um, and we ask, Lord, that you give us the grace and the will to bear one of those burdens. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.